I am Thomas Waddell Waddellsborg, and you are listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 734 or in the United States, text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox, so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkus.com slash 734 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. This week, we're talking to Thomas Waddell Waddellsberg. He is a recent acquaintance of mine. We met through a, um, a writer's group, a nonfiction writer's group, and we found that we have a couple different things in common. For one, we have both attempted to take on the mystery of why so many companies try to do innovation but can't quite get it right. Me in the midst of creativity and him in the book, Innovation as Usual. We also discovered we have a mutual love for red. There are some amazing parallels between both of the covers um, of our books, which immediately obviously meant we both liked each other's books. More importantly than that, we got into a bunch of different ideas around how do you actually make innovation stick, what are the behaviors that actually help people and leaders drive innovation, and had a fascinating conversation because, as we found, though we've been recently acquainted, we've been thinking about these ideas for a long time. It's a fascinating conversation if you want to know how to lead smarter as it pertains to innovation. So without further ado, our interview with Thomas Waddell Waddellsberg. So who are you and what do you do? My name is uh, Thomas Waddell-Waddellsborg. I am 41 years old. I'm Danish, grew up in Copenhagen, and I live in New York now. And what I do is basically uh, a mix of research, writing, teaching, keynote speaking, consulting, all of that focused on innovation broadly, uh, and more specifically kind of corporate innovation, problem solving, a little bit of startup and corporate innovation thrown in there. And... Um, a couple of years ago here, I published a book with uh, Harvard Business Press called uh, Innovation as Usual, uh, which is really about driving innovation in, in your day job, if you will. And so you're, I, I have a vested interest in your book for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is totally superficial. Um, one of the working titles for my newest book, Under New Management, was Business as Unusual. And your book on the cover is, has business as usual, but business is crossed out and then innovation. Um, they're also like the exact same colors, um, almost the same shape and dimension. They're really, really, it's kind of, kind of, it's really cool to get them together. I'll have to post like on Instagram or somewhere uh, a picture of them side to side so people can see how uncanny it is. So that's, that's a package deal. Yeah, totally, totally. So that's the, that's the superficial reason. And then, but there's also interior. Um, we, we have a lot of the same ideas from two different angles, right? So my first book, The Mist of Creativity deals with, um, a lot of the beliefs and stories that we tell ourselves about how innovation is supposed to work. And that's why we're not doing it the way it's supposed to work and et cetera, et cetera. And so I came at it from the lens of trying to change the stories. Um, you, uh, came at it from trying to change behavior. But before we dive into that, you know, we were chatting offline about a much bigger problem, which is 
for the life of me, I cannot figure out why you and I have jobs. Um, I can't, I can't like, and it's not to say that innovation isn't hard. It's terribly hard, but it's also sort of like simple. Like there are certain tweaks and things that, um, if a lot of organizations made, they would have a, a much more robust approach to innovation, but instead they keep defaulting to the like, well, we're going to put people in, well, you, what did you call it? You called it like innovation summer camp or something like that. Brainstorm Island. I love that. Exactly. Or, or a, a skunk works, or we're going to, we're going to invite somebody like you or me in um, to give a talk. And then that'll suddenly, and really it's kind of like if they just sort of took a deep dive on the day to day, we could get this thing figured out. And yet there's so, there's still so much demand for, new people to help with this innovation thing. What is the, what is the deal? What is the holdup? What, what do you, I mean, what do you, I, I have a theory on what I see from my end, but from what you see on your end, why is this so hard? I, I think this is, uh, I mean, you, I feel that you, you pinpointed it pretty exactly on, on focusing on the, those two things of like, you know, the stories and the, the narratives and the behaviors. Um, and the way I see it really is that we're, we're almost, uh, we, we're, we're held captive by a set of mental models and beliefs around what creativity and, and innovation is. And uh, if we follow those, we, we kind of get in trouble. And I feel that that's what, like with your book, uh, The Myths of Creativity, you do a great job of kind of dissecting that. And I think what, what, what I realized on, on looking at that, that there is, there is both that challenge of giving people better mental models for what's actually going on and what, what innovation is. And then there's the challenge of giving them new behaviors as well. Uh, and and ju just in the realization that innovation is not only thinking differently, it's equally acting differently. And if you don't understand what those actions are, what the behaviors are you need to engage in, then it's going to be very difficult to change. Um, and um, I, I think that's really the, that's the high level thing, that this way that we, we have these simplified ideas about innovation and that leads us into the wrong types of behaviors. Do you think some of this just comes from the sort of grass is greener uh, kind of effect? Like, so my my theory is that a lot of this stems from uh, corporations that are presumably less creative or less innovative read fast company and business insider and all of these articles about startups but also really innovative uh, larger older organizations and and they see it sort of like okay so this is what this is what they do and they're they're different and from the outside looking in like i think a lot of times what they don't see is that there's a there's a much more core belief going on in a core set of actions. And and I think sometimes we feel like we can just steal away a piece of talent and suddenly everything will be fixed. Uh, or we can just go tour, you know, we'll go tour Apple or Google and suddenly we'll take a bunch of lessons back. When in reality, I mean, it's almost like uh, the equivalent would be like trying to lose weight by reading a lot about health and fitness. Right. And I think that's what a lot of times we do is in the service of and and I mean, we you and I kind of contribute to this problem because sure, we write these stories. We write them with the hope that people will apply certain things and take different actions. But I think I think sometimes it's just so easy to stay at the level of reading about instead of doing. Yeah. And and this is a bigger conversation around the way we convey information where I feel if you look if you look at a book, well, it's a fantastic way to put a, a, a whole set of ideas out there and kind of create legitimacy for what you're doing. 
it is not such an optimal way to actually help people change their behavior. Like the idea that you have to read through 200 pages of stuff to to start moving forward, that that's a big barrier in and of itself. Um, so I, I, I'm i not sure we have a, a fully a better solution yet, but I really like what's going on in general, you know, what, what people are trying to do with finding different ways of, of helping people moving forward with creating that change. Um, I like re- reverting a little bit to 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 what you said here. Uh, um, I think there's a couple of interesting things going on. One is, of course, that sometimes you just naturally enough, if you're not well versed in innovation, you kind of have these simplified ideas about what it is. You go like, oh, yeah, we just need to get lots of ideas out there and then we're set. Um, and I think if, if people have had a little bit of experience with, with innovation, they quickly realize that, that there's more to it than that. Um, I would say though as well that and, and th- this comes back to kind of the original story for my book that um, it really struck me there's there's a big gap between what you say like the, the role models we look at and the people who are supposed to kind of learn from them because you know you're looking at people very typically in the innovation space like Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, uh, Richard Branson is sending stuff into space, uh, very inspirational. But none of those people have day jobs like they, they, they are, you know, they're either rock stars uh, or we talk about like courageous CEOs and what they did with their organization and all of this. Like those people are so far removed from 95 percent of everybody who actually have to make innovation work. And those 95 percent, I mean, they're, they're stuck in a normal job, not a, you know, in, in the positive sense of the word normal, you know, you have a job, you like it, it's fine, but innovation is just never your first priority in that job. And so given that challenge, what, how do we move forward? That Those are the stories that I miss and, and that I wanted to get out there more, seeing how people have, have actually succeeded with innovation under those circumstances. Do you think there's a bit of a survivorship bias, too, in the sense that, you know, we talk about Elon, we talk about Steve Jobs, we talk about these people who, uh, you know, when, when you boil down some of the best practices that you can derive from what they what they do, taking risks and, you know, in, in, I mean, my favorite is Jobs. People always say that Jobs is proof that you don't need to get feedback on your ideas from potential customers and those sort of things. And it's like, OK, but come on, the, you're looking we're looking at a couple people who survived we need to also look at all of the other people who took lots of risks and burned and lost everything and you know got fired and who didn't listen to customers and so they created the segue right and and all of these other sort of like i said the best practices they they kind of fall apart if you're only looking at the successes as well and and i like what you are saying there with the idea that the people that have have day jobs have other things to do and innovation is just a part of how they make that job better there's a lot of times those best practices, uh, they can't apply. But I think some of the reason for that is that we're only telling the stories of the successful ones, the rock star ones. Exactly. Uh, I think the survivorship bias issue is it's such a big thing in our space. And I it, it has a couple of very bad kind of, um, you know, consequences. Um, so like one of the things, for instance, is that we just have this insane obsession with disruptive innovation. Uh, that that is like you know the big headlines of oh now this industry is being disrupted and so on. Um, two issues about disruption: it happens fairly rarely, and uh, at least if you look at one specific industry, 
And more importantly, the risk is just crazy big. So, so you, you see this drive in corporate innovation initiatives where they say, yeah, let's, let's have a really crazy idea that'll break down all the boundaries. That's probably a bad thing to aim for if you have a day job because the, I mean, both the time horizon is too long for you and the risk, as, as you mentioned, it's, it's just, um, I think some of the research I've seen on this suggests an up to like a 97% failure rate with really disruptive innovations. And that might be fine if you are sitting in an R&D lab with a big portfolio of things. But if you have a normal job, a 95%, 97% failure rate, is that makes it automatically not viable for you to, to kind of go in that direction. Well, and, and we forget, too, that like the, the, the theory of disruptive innovation is packaged in a book called The Innovator's Dilemma. It's a dilemma because even if you're successful in disrupting an industry, as soon as you're the establishment player, disrupting again is too expensive, too risky. The whole reason the opportunity was created is that it, it, it doesn't make sense once you have a large scale company to do the same things that smaller entrants in the market and startups can do. And and that's the actual dilemma of it. It's sort of like, it's a great trick, but it only works once, even if you can get it to work. Yeah. And I, I feel there's, there's also a lot of nuance missing from that debate because, um, what, uh, one, one I like, uh, Costas Makidis from London business schools, he kind of points out that actually there's a bunch of big companies that they were facing an entrant that were trying with the disruptive business model. And they basically just defended against it. Um, I think he mentions Gillette as as one example where they're threatened by the the emergence of kind of the, the cheap racers, and they just figure out a way to deal with that. And they could do that because they had managed their their normal business enough and had like less crazy but still innovative ideas moving forward. So they had a big enough kind of buffer to 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 start dealing with some of those bigger threats. Um, and I, I mean, this might be a weird parallel to make, but I think there's also a media bias in, inherent in this. And um, if you look at uh, 9-11 uh, and you 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 kind of see how that was featured in, in terms of risk, you, you, you saw immediately that after 9-11, a lot of people didn't want to fly. Um, and then... There's this, uh, there's this, uh, I believe this German uh, kind of guy who looked into the additional death costs of that because what happened was people switched yeah. instead of flying, they started driving, and driving is, while more quotidian, much more risky. So he estimated that in the year following 9/11, an additional 1,500 people died on the road because of their beliefs around that. And so there's a weird to me parallel around how. We zoom in on the big spectacular events and they draw our attention to a point where we're actually missing the, the, the smaller but equally or important risks or opportunities that are uh, surround us every day. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and again, it, it kind of goes back to you. Know, the media likes to talk about the, the huge successes. So there's a survivorship bias going there. I think there's also probably an availability bias in the sense that we're looking around um, and we're seeing two or three stories and, and saying that's a trend. And a, a good friend of mine loves to say the plural of anecdote is not data. And yet we still sort of act that way in, in a variety of situations. Um, if we could, I want to kind of transition from that discussion into um, the book. There's some ideas in the book that I really, really enjoyed and, and kind of touched on a little bit from the story. 
um, side, but I love that you touch on it from the behavior side. So the the book outlines a couple different behaviors. I think you call it five plus one, right? If I'm remembering right. Um, the one that I really want to drill, drill down on is the behavior of connect, right? Because again, this idea of brainstorm Island means let's all go off in this little place and let's, let's put innovation inside this little container. But the truth is from a behavior standpoint, I, I always love to say it as creativity is a team sport, but it's it for businesses. It's even more than that because it's your team. As far as your colleagues, it's your team. As far as your customers, your competitors, your vendors, there's a whole network ecosystem you need to be a part of. Uh, I, I, to me, it's um, it's a fascinating thing because there's again, and I think you address this in your book. Like there's this perception, the eureka myth, right? That that ideas arrive kind of out of the blue, a muse whispers into your ear, and great. Um, very clearly, we know from uh, 50 years of research that in good ideas and and spotting opportunities tend to happen when you are regularly exposed to different types of information of like when, when you don't listen to the same types of uh, news that all your colleagues do, when you meet different people and so on. Um, it's, and again, I, I would say tying into the theme of not making this like a one-off event. Uh, this has to be ongoing. Uh, you great. You can like go on a trip to Silicon Valley for a couple of days and that'll be inspiring but it won't necessarily make you more creative. What 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 makes people more creative is when they create habits in their lives where they get that kind of information on a more regular basis. Um, and I think that that to me there's really um, it's it's overlooked the 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 softer aspects of that. And uh, so an, an example. Um, one of the companies I write about in the book is uh, called DSM. And at one point they had an issue uh, in, in with one of their products they, and they had kind of been struggling with it for two years without being capable of getting it into the market. So they go in because they've been inspired by stories of crowdsourcing. They go in, they create a campaign, uh, like a small thing where they go out and kind of uh, blast out the, their problem and say, hey, can you help us fix this? Uh, and indeed, the, you know, that worked. They had uh, five different people coming back to them that helped them solve the problem and get the product into the market. Now, when you look at the idea of connecting, like the story we've been telling people, like the Open Innovation Initiative, there's a guy in New Zealand, he's a watchmaker, and he knows how to fix your problem. Um, the fascinating thing with it, with this story was when I looked into who the five people were that helped solve the problem, three of them worked in their own company. Uh, it was literally, you know, a, it was a scientist from somewhere, a key account manager from somewhere else, and a trainee in their patent office that had seen something from another part of the organization that could help them do it. Uh, I love that example because it shows that Sometimes when you're looking at trying to create new behaviors, you are much better off thinking locally. You, you like thinking about, okay, how can we start in a really simple way, trying to connect people more as part of their daily lives to what else is going on in the organization? Um, that, that's, that's one of the core behaviors. And, and we just know that that's critical for driving innovation and new ideas. Yeah, and I, I 
I loved that example of, oh, we need we need lots of ideas. We need to think outside the box and the company. And then the people who uh, help contribute to this are are technically inside. And it actually reminds me of there was a, an article a uh, number of years ago in, in Harvard Business Review about from a leadership standpoint, the idea of cultivating inside outsiders or outside insiders, the people who are um, who do exactly that, who because they have a little bit more outside perspective, they know what the market and the ecosystem is doing, but they also have a broader range of what everybody inside the company is doing instead of just their their sort of function. And I mean, I think to your point, um, to our point earlier about every day, there's the day-to-day job you have to do. It becomes so easy to just stay in that little habit and respond to those initial demands and not actually think more broadly about this. In fact, you guys, you, you both you talk about this in the book at the very end, and I would be remiss if we ended the interview and didn't talk about this, which is the Monday morning problem. Yeah. Tell us about the the Monday morning problem and also kind of what is your advice? You've, you've We've you know, our listeners have, have, we've been talking for 18 minutes around these ideas. We've given some ideas. They know they've got to go grab the book or books, plural, um, yours and mine, mostly yours. Uh, but they still have to solve this dilemma, the Monday morning problem. Yeah. And, and th- this arose from basically an observation when early on, when I started working with companies together with uh, my co-author, Patty Miller, um, we kind of saw these things that people, they had exciting innovation events and then they came back to the Monday morning uh, reality and they just died. Not, not you know, for no other reason than they were almost thinking too big uh, and they were trying to figure out where that idea would go in year one when what the question they really should be asking themselves is kind of, you know, within the next 14 days, how do I make sure to take the first step? Is there a colleague I can like bring on board that can help me move forward with this? And what am I going to focus on? Like what, what is the one thing that will keep me moving forward beyond the Monday morning problem? And, and, and like until you start thinking that tactically, uh, you are doomed to, you know, see your ideas get stuck on, on brainstorm Island and never really move into to your reality as well. Um, yeah, maybe add on, um, I think this links to the, the issue of connect as well, because one interesting observation I made when looking at uh, people who made innovation happen internally was they weren't actually all of the, the young people. They, they, they weren't necessarily the, the 23 year old firebrand. Um, often the people who make this work, they had been in the company for longer uh, and they had built a network of people who trusted them internally. And very clearly they, they leveraged that. So they went in, and went back to somebody like a former boss who had a good relationship to them and said, hey, can can you give me some advice on moving forward with this? So, again, another aspect of of the idea of connecting that that you can actually build that. And if you happen to be the 23 year old firebrand, well, try to make a friend who's been there for longer, who, who can kind of help you. Mm, I, I think that point is huge as as somebody who's just coming out of being the young firebrand. Um, you can you can win a whole lot more battles if you've got people at different levels who can help you see um, how to actually win that battle, how to play the politics. In fact, there's a chapter in that as well as how to kind of push ideas through the politics of organizations. So I encourage people to check out the book. Again, innovation as usual. Um, really, it's a cool compliment that I didn't even know about until a few months ago. Um, special thanks to the world of Facebook for connecting us in our um, in our writers group, etc., um, so that was quite cool. Thank you, Mitch Joel, I believe. Highly encourage you to to check out the book. Now, Thomas, you know what's coming up next um, because you were so kind to listen to um, the episodes. We ask our guests five questions 
Same five questions of all guests. It's a it's a fun lightning round, but it's really a chance to kind of peek inside various different brains taken together. And so now it's time to turn from the book to you and your brain. So first question, what's the best advice you've ever received? Basically, the idea of doing counterintuitive experiments on your own behavior. And the ironic thing is, I can't actually remember who gave me the advice, uh, but it's it's something I've been applying to myself in terms of getting a little bit beyond my normal patterns. So for instance, I, I tend to be a perfectionist in, in uh, you know, when I write something new, I tinker on it for ages. And then I had a side project where I kind of thought, hmm, it could be interesting to do something here that my gut doesn't agree with. So I put together a very rough prototype of it and I started sharing it. Uh, just with a couple of friends. And interestingly enough, that is may now be on the way to becoming a second or third book. Uh, and I found it was immensely liberating to start working like that. The core thing, though, is is the idea of doing something that disagrees with your gut, because I think we we put way too much emphasis on kind of like, what does your gut tell you about this? Your gut isn't necessarily right. And sometimes it can keep you trapped in you know, in old patterns of behavior that that you could actually benefit from trying to break free from once in a while. Hmm, I like that a lot. What's an average day look like for you? I kind of have two very different days. So introvert and extrovert. The extrovert version, I am out uh, basically on an airplane to somewhere. Last month, I went to Brazil and Hong Kong for speaking gigs. Uh, you know, I'm on a stage. I'm I'm uh, or sitting with a group of executives. Uh, and then there are my other days that I, I try to have at least two days a week like that, where I literally allow nothing in the calendar, that there's not even a phone call. Um, and I get up late, I uh, s- decide which research project that I want to delve into, I spend all of my day just doing that one thing, uh, or kind of seeking out things that make me think. Uh, I go down to an office. A friend of mine has started a company called BarkBox where they have uh, puppies all over. So sometimes I sit there, uh, which is quite nice. Um, and uh, that that's I, 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 I kind of switch between those two types of days. I enjoy them both equally. I'm probably more introvert, but I've kind of learned to fake the, the extrovert version of myself. <laughs> I probably have gone the opposite way. I'm more extroverted, but I've learned to force myself to be an introvert in order to get any work done. What are you reading right now? A couple of different things. I'm... Um, one book that I'm actually kind of revisiting is a book uh, called Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things, which to me is probably the most, best book title in the world uh, after, of course, Under New Management. And, you know, <laughs> You're uh, too kind. Um, and that's really a uh, – it's, it's a guy called George Lakoff who writes about categories and, and the way that we make sense of stuff by using metaphors and categorical reasoning to understand things. And I think, I mean, this links back to our discussion around the way the mental models we have, how that links up into everything we do and how your your job, if, if you know, if you have our type of job, your job is really to go out and give people new mental models for how to do stuff. Uh, that's what you do when you write a book to somebody. And um, otherwise I'm reading, uh, I'm reading a sci-fi book, uh, Ian Banks, one of my favorites uh, authors called The Player of Games. Uh, I've always been obsessed with kind of sci-fi for some reason. Uh, and uh, finally I'm reading a draft of um, 
uh, Heidi Grant Halverson, who's a who's a shared friend of ours, she's got a new book coming out on basically how to get people to help you. Uh, and she shared some of those drafts with me, and it's really really fascinating because I find myself. I say no to a lot of requests, but then on occasion, a stranger kind of gets in touch with me and I end up spending half a day helping that person. And I'm kind of like, wait, wh- why did I do that? And she's dig- she's digging into that. So that that uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing when, when that comes out. Oh, cool. That's really cool. What do you believe that most people don't? Uh, that exercise is bad for you. Uh, because I really hope so, because I don't actually do a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I, that, that, uh, I couldn't resist that one. Um, I think what really struck me, uh, we underestimate the value of old ideas. So especially in our domain with kind of innovation and, and new things, everybody's running around like to try to see what's the, what's the latest new thing that I haven't heard about. Oh, it's fireballing. Oh, fireballing is a new thing. And oh, no, no, fireballing totally yesterday. Now it's symbiotic innovation, you know. And the weird thing is, you know this, you've been digging into the research. We have more than 50 years of research on innovation and creativity, and we know what works. But that is so often just ignored because like, oh, that's so last week. Uh, you know, so so it really struck me when I d- dug into that that a lot of the insights that that are really helpful in innovation we've actually known them for a long time, but there's a tendency to disregard them, especially in our field, because people are so obsessed with finding out the next you know uh, code defenestration or what, what, whatever it is. That's when you collaborate to throw somebody out of the window. Um, I, my point is really, I mean, these things. To be clear, the, the concepts I've mentioned, they're, they're not real. I just invented them. Uh, they may, of course, become real if we repeat them enough. So, you know, in that case, dear listeners, it all started here on Radio Free Leader. Um, but that that idea, really, that we, we underestimate how powerful the past and old knowledge can be in terms of actually helping us move forward. Hmm. No, that's powerful. Um, so our final question, the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? I, the immediate answer that just popped into my mind uh, is just their followers, that, that evidently you, you become a leader when people voluntarily uh, start listening to you. But I found, I, I thought about, and I expanded it and maybe to say what makes somebody a good leader. And um, the, the perspective I can offer here, I'm not myself uh, much of a leader. I, I did spend like a couple of years in the Danish army, but... You know, this is the Danish army. Mostly, mostly what we do is run around and practice saying we surrender in different languages. Um, <laughs> you know. um, I, I think there's there's two things I thought about that I had noticed. Um, one is the ability to rise above the situation, meaning almost to take a step back from what's going on. And th- this is something that came to me through my army experience, where there are some leaders that get too close to the front line. If, if, if they're in a foxhole, they start acting like a soldier. And really your job is actually to take a step back and say, what's going on here? What is the critical thing we have to do next? And to not get sucked into the daily doings of just getting stuff done. And that to me is, it's not something you do every month. It's something you do almost as a five minute habit of, of your leader's behavior. The second thing I would say, uh, just <laughs> a propensity for brutal self-examination. Um, 
it it just strikes me that bad leadership is is recognized as one of the biggest problems out there and most people have experienced having a bad leader and yet far too few leaders actually really examine their own own behaviors and kind of consider might i be a bad leader sometimes and how can i change that so the propensity to really take a long unpleasant look in the mirror sometimes and seek out different ideas different perspectives and maybe doing experiments on your own behavior That's good. That's good. The book again is Innovation as Usual, How to Help Your People Bring Great Ideas to Life. You know, that's what we're all about here on Radio Free Leader as well. So Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David.